One thing the Bible makes pretty clear is that Jesus chose some pretty clueless disciples. Peter was the most vocal about his cluelessness, but all of them struggled to understand what Jesus was teaching them. You may recall that he had to tell his disciples repeatedly that he was going to be arrested, tortured, killed, and rise from the dead, and yet when it happened, they couldn't believe it. Jesus also had a difficult time getting his disciples to believe another one of his teachings. So I'm going to read a few passages from different points in his ministry and see if maybe you can pick out from them what he's driving at. The first passage I'm going to start with is Mark 9, 33-37, and you don't have to follow along, but if you do, that's fine. Um, this describes a period where Jesus was in Galilee, near where he grew up. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking, them in his, taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. Our second passage is Mark 10, 35-45, as Jesus and the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem just before Jesus was crucified. As James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, for it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him, and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be first among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the third passage is Matthew 23, 1-12, which Jesus spoke when he was in Jerusalem, just days before his arrest. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and in the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest of you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Does anybody catch a common thread in these passages as surfaces? No? <laughs> no, he says, okay. I'll give it explicitly, the particular passages. Um, comment here, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. That's in the first one. He said, 
And the second one, um, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then the final one, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Jesus repeated this message over and over again, just as he talked about it, his crucifixion and his suffering that would lead up to it. And just as he talked about that and nobody understood it, so he talks about service and nobody understood it either. So if we turn to John 13, 1 through 7, we'll read one more passage where um, Jesus described, well, where we see an event described that took place on the night when Jesus was betrayed and crucified. This is John 13, 1 through 7. And it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from the Father and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Simon answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he, washed, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Good old Peter, shocked that Jesus is living out the very thing that he's been teaching about all along. He hears Jesus teaching again and again that the greatest of them is to be a servant. And yet when Jesus, who is clearly the greatest among them, is a servant, Peter's blown away. He just doesn't get it. But fortunately for Peter and for all of us, Jesus is not surprised by Peter's cluelessness. For he tells him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. This is not some, like some of Jesus' parables, which are never given a clear explanation in Scripture. And so we're left to sort of deduce on our own exactly what the meaning of the passage is. This Jesus wants us to understand, and he will make it clear to us, because it matters. It is a central part of his teaching. So in the beginning of verse 12, in the middle of verse 12, I should say, Jesus starts with the question, Do you understand what I have done to you? And given that he has just told Peter that he didn't understand what Jesus was doing, we can take this as a rhetorical question, for which the answer is no. Peter had no clue. Neither did any of the other disciples, really, for this was the kind of thing that would just be unexpected and unbelievable in their experience. It would be like inviting a distinguished guest over for dinner, 
and having him take off his suit coat and put on some gloves and start cleaning the bathroom or washing the dishes. This is crazy. It's not what distinguished people do. Washing people's feet was a menial task for slaves. Sandaled feet got dirty walking along dusty roads where horses and donkeys and sheep and goats had walked before. And it was the job of slaves to clean them after a long day's work, not the work of the honored guest. In any case, there's any doubt, Jesus goes on to affirm that, yes, he is indeed the honored guest. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. And teachers and lords did not wash the feet of their guests, in case there's any doubt. Like other teachers of the day, Jesus had collected disciples around him, the, the apostles, and in relationships like these, the disciples were expected to serve the teachers. They were intended to you know, pay them back with service in return for the opportunity to learn from them, not the other way around. And the title Lord only amplifies this expectation. If Jesus is Lord, then the Lord is the ruler of his domain, and the job of everyone else in that domain is to serve the ruler and to do what he wants of them, not the other way around. So when Jesus takes up the towel in the basin of water and starts washing his disciples' feet, he is utterly inverting the social order. Of course, he's been doing this all along in all of his teachings. But here he makes it clear that um, what he has been teaching. He has told them that while the social order has the greater people being served by the lesser, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be the great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And while the disciples had heard what Jesus had said, it really hadn't penetrated their hearts. Like his talk about the crucifixion, it's teaching about greatness and service had sailed right past them. It's almost as if you could hear them say, Ah, that Jesus, he sure does wonderful things, but once in a while his teachings are really weird. But when Jesus starts by putting his teaching into action, they can no longer write him off, and they have to come to grips with what he's saying. In the next sentence, Jesus makes this even harder. He says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also must ought to wash one another's feet. This is not just for the leaders, not just for those who aspire to be great, but for everyone. If the guy at the top, which sort of by the way is starting to look an awful lot like the bottom, it's the servant's place, and that's not normally what the top looks like. But if the guy at the top does something hard, we have to take seriously the possibility that he might that we might be expected to do the same thing as well. And Jesus drives us home and says, yes, that indeed is what expected here, because he says, for I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. This is not something that superhero, you know, religious people do and is saved for them and not for anybody else. This is for everybody, for all the people that call him Lord and teacher. So in washing the disciples' feet, Jesus has set for all of his people an example of service. If we are his people, if we call him Lord and teacher, we are called to follow his example. And that means serving one another, even in the most menial and undesirable of tasks. And for those of us who are looking for an escape clause, a natural thing to be doing sometimes, Jesus shuts that door by telling us, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. 
If Jesus was not exempt, neither are we. And the disciples were soon to discover that this demand extended much deeper than washing feet. Jesus' service to us goes much, much deeper than that. That very night, he was, he was going to be arrested. He was going to be tried in a mock trial. He was going to be convicted and sentenced, humiliated, tortured, and finally crucified. On him would be the burden of all of our sins. He would pay the price for our sins and make it possible for us to be cleansed far more deeply than any amount of foot washing could do. And the people that Jesus served weren't only those who were good and worthy people. He didn't serve just the comfortable ones, the ones who was easy to be around and all the rest. He served Peter. He washed Peter's feet, even though Peter was about to betray him in a few hours. He washed Judas, who turned him over to the Jewish leaders for crucifixion. He washed the rest of his disciples' feet, even though they couldn't stay with him in Gethsemane and pray with him, and even though as soon as he was arrested, they fled the scene. Jesus washed people who, frankly, didn't much deserve being washed, and he served them because he loved them anyhow. If Jesus, our Lord and teacher, was willing to do this for us, there is nothing that we should be unwilling to do for one another. We're stuck. Even if the task is menial and the people we serve are undeserving, and funny, it looks sort of like us in that regard, if the need is there and we have the gifts to meet it, God calls us to imitate Jesus, our Lord and teacher, by serving. And this can be really scary. Yeah, it can be. Look where Jesus went in his willingness to serve us. Look where his disciples went in imitation of him. If we call Jesus Lord and teacher, there's nothing he can't ask of us in service to one another. Some of us know that. If you watch the kinds of service that people do around here, it can be wonderful to see. It's beautiful. The Adventure Week video that we saw a few weeks earlier particularly moved me in that regard as you watch people just lining up in a way to serve the kids, to serve others, to make this wonderful ministry happen. So many people giving of their time, energy. They had, you know, come home after a hard day's work and what they do, they go out and work with a bunch of, you know, hundreds of, in some cases, of squirrely kids and lead them in learning the gospel and in coming to understand Jesus. It was wonderful. But you know, on any given Sunday, we see a lot of people here that are doing that same kind of thing. Sunday by Sunday, serving one another and demonstrating a spirit of just grace to do whatever for each other is needed. Whether it's setting up refreshments, feeding the homeless, caring for children, handing out bulletins, praying for each other, running the sound and slides, it really, you know, all kinds of stuff. And we don't often notice that fact or celebrate it but it does show Jesus. And we would never survive as a church without people willing to do exactly that kind of thing. These are people that have know what it means to call Jesus Lord and their teacher, and they imitate him by serving others and by doing this in whatever way he calls them to. Jesus says to these people and to all of us, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Sort of like a beatitude. 
We've heard that word blessed before earlier in this series where, you know, we talked about how, you know, blessed, hashtag blessed was one of the most popular hashtags out there. Okay, and people have pictures of all kinds of good things that happen to them that they see as blessings. Well, as we've noted then, and we can see now, what God calls blessings don't necessarily look to us that way at the time. You know, look at the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, Jesus says things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And we ask ourselves, you know, huh? And right next to this one, he says, Blessed are those who serve one another as I have served them. Now, sometimes it's not so hard to see that blessing. If you love children, then working with them, watching them grow and mature, seeing them come to know Jesus better, all that's a joy and a blessing. And the blessing is clear and it's evident to us. It's visible. If you love meeting new people and connecting with those you know, then standing at the door and handing out bulletins and greeting people is a joy. And you experience the blessing as you do it. But sometimes the blessings aren't so easy to recognize. Like the Beatitudes, the blessings that are promised for service are in many ways counterintuitive. Just as we don't easily recognize how one can be blessed if we mourn or if we're persecuted, so we don't easily see how we can be blessed if we're doing what feels like chores in our service to one another. Blessed are those who wash the dishes, who change the diapers, who labor to prepare yet another lesson for kids who just don't seem to get it. Blessed are those who spend their Thursday afternoons bagging carrots and stacking cans for the La Mariotta Food Bank, who get here early to open doors and set things up and to stay late to make sure that everything is properly cleaned up and shut down. Really? Blessed? Yes. But it can be hard to see. Sometimes really hard. Sometimes when Jesus offers us something that he says will bless us, our instinct is almost to run from the room screaming, No! Anything but that! I don't want to mourn. I don't want to hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake. And I don't want to serve. Why is this? One reason, I think, is that we have our own agendas, and serving one another doesn't always fit into them. We are often too busy doing the things that we feel will bless us to be willing to do the things that Jesus says will bless us. The world offers us heaps of things that provide short-term enjoyment, and if that's all we're looking for to feel blessed, then we won't be moved by Jesus' promise of blessing. He knew that and told a parable about it in Luke 14, 15 through 24. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And then another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. I'm busy, Lord. Got oxen. Got a field. 
Got stuff. You fill in the blanks. We all know what it means to tell the Lord, we're busy. We got things to do. We haven't got time to serve one another. Because we're too busy for the blessing, we don't see it. Another reason that Jesus' promises of blessings fail to move us is that the only blessing we can conceive of is the immediate pleasure we get from doing or receiving something. If what we do is fun, we are blessed. If it isn't, we aren't. If the task is easy, we are blessed. If it's hard work, we aren't. If there's an immediate reward, we are blessed. If there isn't, we aren't. But the blessings of God's kingdom often don't work that way. If we look at the Beatitudes in Matthew, the promises that Jesus makes to us are the kingdom of heaven, the comfort of God, inheriting the earth, to have our hunger and thirst for righteousness satisfied, to see God, to be called sons of God, and a great reward in heaven. For the most part, these are not the kinds of blessings we enjoy immediately or fully in this life. The meek do not inherit the earth in this life. And because we don't get the rewards here and now in ways that we can immediately feel and enjoy, we aren't motivated by them. If it's a choice between these kinds of rewards and a stake, some of us might well choose the stake. We make Esau's choice all the time, choosing a bowl of soup over our birthright. And part of the reason for this is that our vision of heaven is so impoverished. When your vision of heaven is largely based on the cartoon image of bored angels standing in clouds strumming harps, it's hard to get excited about a great reward in heaven when you could sleep in an extra hour on Sunday morning. Often, we need for our vision of heaven to be expanded or even demolished and replaced. We need to have a vision of heaven that the Bible actually gives us to believe in what it actually tells us about what heaven is. Heaven is a place where there's no pain or sorrow. And the joys set before us make our present day suffering look insignificant. Heaven's a place where glorious rewards are offered to those who persevere. Where God dwells among his people and wipes away every tear from their eye. Heaven is a place of surpassing, of unimaginable joy and beauty and splendor and delight. If we take the joys of the biggest wedding and best and most wonderful wedding we've ever seen and we combine it together with the joys of Victory Day after World War II and the closing Olympic ceremony and a few other things add on the Super Bowl celebrations and the works and pile them all together and make it bigger, at least you're heading in the right direction. This is what heaven is about. This is the joy that he sets before us. This is a pointer, a hint at the direction for the joy that makes all of our sorrows look insignificant. And this is the kind of vision that he expects for us to have if we are being motivated to serve him. Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. It was for this. Nothing less would have done. And we try and enjoy suffering without any of that vision, and we can't do it because it can't be done. But the risk in thinking of heaven this way is that we may end up getting a little too focused on ourselves and our accomplishments rather than on the God we serve. This happens too. We need to be reminded that it may be easy to serve because, oh, we feel so good about the service and so special. 
I think the Ephesian church had a problem something like that as we read in Revelation 2, starting in verse 1, where Jesus comes to them with an unexpected message. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven, lampstand, the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and that you have not grown weary. These are people who are working, are serving, are doing hard work of rooting out heresy and, and keeping people on track before God doctrinally, and it matters, and it's tough. But, Jesus says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Therefore, remember therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And the removing of the lampstand is dissolving them as a church. They are no church anymore without the lampstand because that is, as we we're told in chapter 1 of Revelation, these are the churches and Jesus walks among the seven churches, which are them. So if he removes the lampstand, they have become nothing. They have become what? A social club. They have become a crew of people that love doing good deeds for the sake of the rewards that it gives and the self-satisfaction and all the rest. But they are no longer a church. They no, lo no longer know Jesus. They no longer serve him. They instead, like the Pharisees, get the satisfaction of being part of the elite crowd. God doesn't reward service that is done for the sake of being important or being recognized, or for earning a place in his kingdom. Our service must be motivated by love. That's why he says, you know, it matters that they have forgotten the first, their first love. And what he called them to in that passage is, repent and do the works you did at first, which were works motivated by love. They were not works done for the sake of a, a spiritual heroics, but out of love. And Paul says the same thing to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 13, it's a message that we often need to hear. With verse 1, we read, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I mean, we can do amazing things. Miracles, wonderful teachings, um, amazing service, enormous gifts, donations. And Jesus said they're nothing without love. I mean, I might as well shut up and leave. A clanging gong. If, if I can't love him and you at least, if that isn't at least some of my motive for doing it, it does me no good, doesn't you no good. It says love is patient and kind. And so it deals with the unloving and unlovable. And it doesn't hold it against them. It doesn't envy or boast. is isn't comparing itself against how well other people are serving or he got the more prominent or prestigious place. Love doesn't jockey that way. 
for recognition. It is not arrogant or rude to see all the wonderful stuff I know that I bestow on you, all the marvelous gifts I can give. No, it does not insist on its own way. You serve according to the need and according to what God leads, not according to your own blueprint. But God, I had this in mind. No, this is what I want you to do. It is not irritable or resentful. And come home and say, those kids, oh, they were just, again? You know, not that. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth and with desires and loves to see good. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love like this is what motivates the kind of service that Jesus is looking for. This is what it's about. And this is the love that Jesus had for us. He loved the unlovable, the people that could not get what he was serving, that could not appreciate it, that could not follow in his footsteps, at least not at first. Jesus did it, and he is our model for what it means to be. And we see Paul describing that, and we had this passage read during our worship time. It was, you know, Philippians 2. He says, beginning with verse 1, he says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, and this is the example we have, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The way up is down. The greatest Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who had the essential nature of God, became a servant for our sake and humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. Having gone down to the grave, it was then that God lifted him up and made him Lord of all. And as it was for Jesus, so it will be for his people. The way up is down. We are called to imitate the, his willingness to empty ourselves and become servants and give of ourselves for the good of others in obedience to God. We are to have the same love as he had, to set aside all selfish ambition and to seek not only our good, but the good of others, counting them more significant than ourselves. This is the mark of those who call Jesus teacher and Lord and so follow the example that he gave. And if we set out to do this, we will be blessed. This is the promise of Jesus. And we need to believe it. We need to recognize it. We need to accept it as true and let it be the motivating factor for us. Nothing less will motivate us to that kind of service. If we can get past our preoccupation with the here and now, if we can slow down a bit and listen to what Jesus offers, we might begin to properly value it and find in it the encouragement that we will need in order to imitate him. 
Listen to what he promises in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, to those who imitate him in their service. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. There's that word blessed again. Listen to it. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty? And give you drink. And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you in sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of these, the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Funny how we hear that one repeated too, right? Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. That but is really good. The righteous into eternal life. The king, we inherit the kingdom prepared for us from the foundation of the world. That's the reward that Jesus promises to those who follow his example. Is it sounding attractive at all? Hopefully? Yes. Especially when faced with the alternative. Ah, yeah, the kingdom is prepared for those who serve the least of these, whom Jesus counts as his brothers and sisters. And as we do it to them, he counts it as being done to himself. When we feed the hungry at food bank or at sharing grace, we feed him. When we comfort the lonely and hurting in our midst, we comfort him. When we hold a crying infant in the nursery or patiently coax a restless elementary school student to attend to his teacher, we care for Jesus. When we provide refreshments or offer a bulletin and a smile to a visitor, it is Jesus we serve, and it is He who will reward us at the end. All service, even so small as a cup of cold water, offered to one of Jesus' people for His sake, receives his reward, and we will know it in that day when he says to us, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But if we are too busy to attend to Jesus and too preoccupied with our immediate desires and enjoyments, one day Jesus may tell us that we missed out on the chance to serve him. So where do we go from here? What's next? What do we do with this? It's not to become a total burden on us. First thing is to recognize whether we've called Jesus Lord and Teacher or not. That's rather central, right? 
This is examples for those people who call him Lord and teacher, who know him to be such and are strengthened by that fact, who know that Lord means obedience and teacher means, it tells us how. So some of us need to maybe go back and say, what's, what's our relationship to Jesus? Is he really Lord and teacher? Second is, if he is, you need to obey his call. He gave us the example, says, this is my example that you might obey it. Not simply that we might look on it and admire it. You know, I mean, so many people call Jesus a great teacher, but they don't obey any of his commandments. This is not the point of great teachers. <laughs> not why they came here. We need to follow his example. We need to do what he says. Some of us need to open our eyes to the needs. Even the unexpected ones in our midst. And we're in a situation where, oh, I'd love to serve, but I can't think of anything to do. Well, maybe opening the bulletin might reveal a few. They might be ones that you hadn't thought of seeing yourself in that place before, but just possibly the Lord might want you to do something like, you know, like that he wanted the disciples to wash feet. I mean, that wasn't what they expected either. Who knows? God may have some unexpected things for us to do. Open the bulletin. Open your eyes. Open your heart. Watch. Listen. Care for the people around you and see if he doesn't give you an opportunity to serve. Some of us have to cultivate motives to serve. God, the thought of adding another thing to our to-do list is so, so draining that we can't even conceive of it. And you have to do a couple things there, I think, in order to help, in order to begin to desire to serve. One of which is to remember what he's done for us, what Jesus has actually given us himself, the tremendous riches we have in Christ, in his work on the cross, in his love for us, in his opportunity, you know, to teach us so much that we have in the past. He saved us from our sins. He has reconciled us with God. And if these things matter to us, they can strengthen us. And the other thing is that we need to look forward to the reward that he's set before us. I've driven this home repeatedly because this is central. It is absolutely central. When we think of ourselves, we can't imagine enduring the kind of suffering that an athlete endures if there was no championship game in front of him to reward. We can't imagine ourselves, you know, spending endless hours playing scales if there was no performance in Carnegie Hall to look forward to. We can't imagine doing these things, and that's right. You can't do these things without the reward. You have to look forward to the reward set before you like Jesus did. Get to know heaven. Get to know the teachings. Believe them. And they will enable you to walk in the path that he calls you to. Also, look for the rewards in the present as you teach. This is one of the things. Some of us are really tired. We've been serving a lot. We've worked darn hard, put in many hours, and, and sometimes it's just frustrating. But one of the things is there is open your eyes to see the things that God's doing in the midst through you. And they may not be big and they may not be prominent, but they can be a blessing. The kid that gets it this time in, the, in his service, the kid that um, stops crying, and rest in your arms, and the opportunity to let the parents be in service without having to worry about the child. The, um, those kind of things. Look for the rewards. Don't get burned out like Martha did, as she said to Jesus, serving them at a big dinner. She said, my sister Mary is doing nothing. Tell her to help me. Yeah, yeah, it's an easy temptation. Don't do that. Jesus said to, Mary, to Martha, you're working on a lot of important things, yes. You're fretted out by many of them, but Mary's chosen the crucial thing. Do this. Sometimes we have to set down the burdens and sit at his feet. Remembering that Jesus is the one who finally holds his church up. It does not rest on us. 
We are not the ones by whom it stands or falls. Jesus is. And if you are near the edge of burnout because of your service, take a breath. Sit at his feet. Let him remind you of how much he loves you, how much he cares for you, how much he blesses, how much he has set before you in heaven. Rest in his care. And then return to service out of love for the one who served us and glorifies himself in us as we serve others. So, you know where you are in this regard. You may need to call him Lord and teacher. You may need to follow his example. Any, any of the bunch of these things, you might need to be the one that needs to do those. And invitation is now, I'm going to take a few moments of silence. Think before God about where you are in this and what you need to do. Maybe he needs to increase your vision of heaven. Ask him for that. So that you might be encouraged in what you're doing. Whatever it is. But lead us in prayer audibly, if you can. Speak out. And ask for all of us what you need for yourself, because many more of us need it than just you. And so lead us in prayer as well as we pray. And after a few minutes, I'll close. Father, thank you for what Jesus did. Supremely modeling service as he left the glory that was his, did not cling to it, but he emptied himself and took the form of a servant, one who would even stoop to washing feet, and then went farther than that to one who would die for people who hated him. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. That's about as far down as one can go in service, and he went there for our sake. And he was raised from the dead that we might enjoy the hope of glory with him. Lord, as he modeled it for us, and as the servant is not greater than the master, Father, so we are, we who call him Lord and teacher, need to learn how to live in the way that he modeled for us, Father. Help us to to move in that direction from wherever we are, Father, whatever position we find ourselves, whether we need to call him Lord and teacher or whether we need to, to be willing to obey, we need to be able to open our eyes and see and desire to serve others, Father, whatever it takes. Do this in us, because it's by your strength and by your grace and that any of this is done at all. And help us to know the joy of it, Father. Speak to us in the little moments of your pleasure. Help us to see the good that comes of the service at least once in a while. And Father, help us to look forward to the joy of the reward and to rejoice in that even as we walk through challenging times sometimes in this day-to-day -day life. Guide us, provide for us, help us to to reflect Jesus' service as we serve one another at a watching world might see and take note and want to know and maybe come to know Jesus as a result. For it's his name that we pray. Amen.